Welcome to Volume 4 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 9 Weenook proved to be a decentish little shack, situated in agreeable surroundings. A bit ye old, but otherwise all right. It had a thatched roof and a lot of those windows with small lidded panes, and there was a rockery in the front garden. It looked in short, as I subsequently learned was the case, as if it had formerly been inhabited by an elderly female of good family who had kept cats. I had walked in and deposited the small suitcase in the hall, when as I stood gazing about me, inhaling the fog, which always seems to linger about these antique interiors, I became aware that there was more in this joint than met the eye. In a word, I suddenly found myself speculating on the possibility of it not only being foggy, but haunted. What started this train of thought was the fact that odd noises were in progress somewhere near at hand. Here a bang and there a crash, suggesting the presence of a poltergeist or whatnot. The sound seemed to proceed from the other side of a door at the end of the hall, and I was hastening thither to investigate for I was dashed if I was going to have poltergeist lounging around the place as if it belonged to them, when I took a toss over a pail which had been placed in the fairway. I had just picked myself up, rubbing the spot, when the door opened and there entered a small boy with a face like a ferret. He was wearing the uniform of a boy scout, and I had no difficulty, in spite of the fact that his features were liberally encrusted with dirt, in identifying him as Florence's little brother Edwin the child at whom Boko Fiddleworth was accustomed to throwing china ornaments. Oh, hello, Bertie, he said, grinning all over his loathsome face. Hello, you frightful young squirt, I responded civilly. What are you doing here? Tidying up. I touched on a point of absorbing interest. Was it you who left that bally pear there? Where? In the middle of the hall. Oh, yes, I remember now. I put it there to be out of the way. I see. Well, you'll be amused to learn that I've nearly broken my leg. He started. A fanatic gleam came into his eyes. He looked like a boy confronted with an unexpected saucer of ice cream. I say, have you really? This is a bit of a bunce. I can give you first aid. No, you jolly well can't. But if you've busted your leg, then... I haven't busted my leg. But you just said you had. A mere figure of speech. Well, you may have sprained your ankle. I haven't sprained my ankle. I can do first aid for contusions. I haven't any contusions. Stand back, I cried, for I was prepared to defend myself with iron resolution. There was a pause. His manner was that of one who finds the situation in a deadlock. My spirited attitude had plainly disconcerted him. Can't I bandage you? You'll get a thick ear if you try. You may get gangrene. I anticipate no such contingency. You'll look silly if you get gangrene. No, I shan't. I shall look fine. I knew a chap who bumped his leg and it turned black and it had to be cut off at the knee. You do seem to mix with the most extraordinary people. I could turn the cold tap on it. No, you couldn't. Again, that baffled air came into his demeanor. I had nonplussed him. Then I'll be getting back to the kitchen, he said. I'm going to do the chimney. It needs a jolly good cleaning out. This place would have been in a frightful mess if it hadn't been for me. He added with a smugness which jarred upon my sensibilities. How do you mean if it hadn't been for you, I reposted, in my keen way. I'll bet you've been spreading ruin and desolation on all sides. I've been tidying up, he said with a touch of pique. 
Florence put some flowers for you in the sitting room. I know, she told me. I fetched the water. Well, I'll go and do the chimney, shall I? Do it if it pleases you till your eyes bubble, I said, and dismissed him with a cold gesture. Now, I don't know how you would have made a cold gesture. No doubt people's methods vary, but the way I did it was by raising the right arm in a sort of salute and allowing it to fall to my side. And as it fell, I became aware of something missing. The coat pocket against which the wrist impinged should have contained a small, solid object, to wit, the package containing the brooch which Aunt Agatha had told me to convey to Florence for her birthday. And it didn't. The pocket was empty. At that same moment, the kid Edwin said, Coo! And stopped and came up holding the thing. Did you drop this? He asked. Any doubts that may have lingered in the child's mind as to my having broken my leg must have been dispelled by the spring I made. I flew through the air with the greatest of ease. A panther could not have moved more nippily. I wrenched the thing from his grasp and once more pocketed it. He seemed intrigued. What was it? A brooch. A birthday present for Florence. Shall I take it to her? No, thank you. I will if you like. No, thank you. It would save you the trouble. Had the circumstances been other than they were, I might have found this benevolence of his cloying, so much so indeed as to cause me to kick him in the pants. But he had rendered me so signal a service that I merely smiled warmly at the young blister, a thing I hadn't done for years. No, thank you, I said. I won't let it out of my hands. I will run across and deliver it this evening. Well, well, young Edwin, I continued affably. A smart piece of work, that. They train you sprouts to keep your eyes open. Tell me, how have you been all this while, all right? No colds, colics, or other juvenile ailments? Splendid. I should hate to feel that you have been suffering in any way. It was decent of you to suggest putting my leg under the tap. Greatly appreciated. I wish I had a drink to offer you. You must come up and see me sometime when I am more settled. And on this cordial note, our interview terminated. I tottered out into the garden and for a space stood leaning on the front gate. My spine was still feeling a bit jellified and I needed support. I say my spine had become as jelly and if you knew my Aunt Agatha, you would agree that so it jolly well might. This relative is a woman who, like Napoleon, if it was Napoleon, listens to no excuses for failure, however sound. If she gives you a brooch to take to a stepdaughter and you lose it, it is no sort of use trying to tell her that the whole thing was an act of God, caused by your tripping over unforeseen pails and having the object jerked out of your pocket. Pawn though you may have been in the hands of fate, you get put through it just the same. If I had not recovered the blighted trinket, I should never have heard the last of it. The thing would have marked an epoch. World-shaking events would have been referred to as having happened about the time Bertie lost that brooch, or just after Bertie made such an idiot of himself over Florence's birthday present. Aunt Agatha is like an elephant, not so much to look at, for in appearance she resembles more a well-bred vulture, but because she never forgets. Leaning on the gate, I found myself seething with kindly feelings toward Edwin. I wondered how I could have ever got so astray in my judgment as to consider him a ferret-faced little son of a whatnot. And as I was just going on to debate in my mind the idea of buying him some sort of gift as a reward for his admirable behavior, there was a loud explosion, and turning, I saw that wee Nook had gone up in flames. 
it gave me quite a start. Chapter 10 Well, everybody enjoys a good fire, of course, and for a while it was in a purely detached and appreciative spirit that I stood eyeing the Holocaust. I felt that this was going to be value for money. Already the thatched roof was well ablaze, and it seemed probable that before long the whole edifice, being the museum piece it was, all dry rot and what not, would spit on its hands and really get down to it. And so, as I say, for about the space of two shakes of a duck's tail, I stood watching it with quiet relish. Then, putting a bit of a damper on the festivities, there came floating into my mind rather disturbing thought, to wit, that the last that I had seen of young Edwin, he had been seeping back into the kitchen. Presumably, therefore, he was still on the premises. And the conclusion to which one was forced to was that unless somebody took prompt steps through the proper channels, he was likely ere long to be rendered unfit for human consumption. This was followed by a second and still more disturbing thought that the only person in a position to do the necessary spot of fireman save my childing was good old Worcester. I'm mused. Suppose you would call me a fairly intrepid man, taken by and large, but I'm bound to admit I wasn't any too keen on the thing. Apart from anything else, my whole attitude toward the stripling who was faced with the prospect of being grilled on both sides had undergone another quick change. When last heard from, if you remember, I had been thinking kindly thoughts of young Edwin, and even going to the length of considering buying him some inexpensive present. But now I found myself once more viewing him with the eye of censure. I mean to say it was perfectly obvious to the meanest intelligence that it was owing to some phonus baloness on his part that the conflagration had been unleashed in the first place, and I was conscious of a strong disposition to leave well enough alone. It being, however, one of those situations where noblesse more or less oblige, I decided that I had better do the square thing, and I had torn off my coat and flung it from me and was preparing to plunge into the burning building, though still feeling it was a bit thick having to get myself all charred up to gratify a kid who would be far better cooked to a cinder, when he emerged. His face was black and he hadn't any eyebrows, but in other respects appeared reasonably bobbish. Indeed, he seemed entertained rather than alarmed by what had occurred. Coo, he said in a pleasant sort of voice. Bit of a bust-up, wasn't it? I eyed him sternly. What the dickens have you been playing at, you abysmal young louse? I demanded. What was that explosion? Oh, that was the kitchen chimney. It was full of soot, so I shoved some gunpowder up it. I think I may have used too much, because there was a terrific bang and everything sort of caught fire. Coo! It didn't half make me laugh. Why didn't you pour water in the flames? I did. It only turned out to be paraffin. I clutched my brow. I was deeply moved. It had just come home to me that this blazing pyre was the joint which was supposed to be the Worcester GHQ, and the householder spirit had awoken in me. Every impulse urged me to give the little snudge six of the best with a bludgeon, but you can't very well slosh a child who has just lost his eyebrows. Besides, I hadn't a bludgeon. Well, you've probably messed things up, I said. It didn't all work out quite the way I meant, he admitted but I wanted to do my last Friday's act of kindness. At these words, all was suddenly made plain to me. It was so long since I had seen the young poison sack that I had forgotten the kink in his psychology which made him such a menace to society. This Edwin, I now recalled, 
was one of those thorough kids who spare no effort. He had the same serious outlook on life as his sister Florence, and when he joined the Boy Scouts, he did so resolved not to shirk his responsibilities. The program called for a daily act of kindness, and he went at it in a grave and earnest spirit. Unfortunately, what with one thing and another, he was always dropping behind schedule, and would then set such a clip to try and catch up with himself that any spot in which he happened to be functioning rapidly became a perfect hell for the man and beast. It was so at the house in Shropshire, where I had first met him, and it was evidently just the same now. It was with a grave face and a thoughtful tooth-chewing the lower lip that I picked up my coat and donned it. A weaker man, contemplating the fact that he was trapped in a locality containing not only Florence Cray, Police Constable Cheesewright, and Uncle Percy, but also Edwin doing acts of kindness, would probably have given at the knees. I am not so sure I might not have done so myself, had I not my mind been diverted by a frightful discovery, so ghastly that I uttered a hoarse cry, and all thoughts of Florence, Stilton, Uncle Percy, and Edwin were wiped from my mind. I had just remembered that my suitcase with the Sinbad the Sailor costume in it was in the wee nook front hall and flames were leaping ever nearer. There was no hesitation, no vacillating about my movements now. When it was a matter of risking my life to save Boy Scouts, I might have stood scratching the chin a bit, but this was different. I needed that Sinbad. Only by retrieving it would I be able to attend the fancy dress ball at East Wibley tomorrow night, the one bright spot in a dark and sticky future. Well, I suppose I could have popped up to London and got something else, but probably a mere Perrault, and my whole heart was set on the Sinbad with the ginger whiskers. Edwin was saying something about fire brigades, and I right-hoed absently. Then, snapping into it like a jackrabbit, I committed my soul to God and plunged in. Well, as it turned out, I didn't have worried. It is true that there was a certain amount of smoke in the hall, billowing hither and thither in murky clouds, but... Nothing to bother a man who might have often sat to leeward at Catsmeat Potter Pierbright when he was enjoying one of those cigars of his. In a few minutes it was plain, the whole place would be a cheerful blaze, but for the nonce conditions were reasonably normal. It is no story, in short, of a jolly, nearly fried-to-a-crisp Bertram Worcester that I have to tell, but rather of a Bertram Worcester who just scooped up the old suitcase, whistled a gay air, and breezed out without a mark on him. I may have coughed once or twice, but nothing more. But though Peril might have failed to get off the mark inside the house, it was very strong in the wing outside. The first thing I saw as I emerged was Uncle Percy standing at the gate. And as Edwin had now vanished, presumably in search of fire brigades, I was alone with him in the great open spaces, a thing I've always absolutely barred being from since the days of childhood. Oh, hello, Uncle Percy, I said. Good afternoon, good afternoon. A casual passerby, hearing the words and noting the hearty voice in which they had been spoken, might have been deceived into supposing that Bertram was at his ease. Such, however, was far from being the case. Whether anyone was ever at ease in the society of this old God-help-us, I cannot say, but I was definitely not. The spine, and I do not attempt to conceal the fact, had become soluble to the last degree. You may wonder at this, arguing that, as I was not responsible for the disaster which had come upon us, I had nothing to fear. 
but a longish experience had taught me that on these occasions innocence pays no dividends. Pure as the driven snow though he may be, or even purer, it is the man on the spot who gets the brick bats. My civil greeting elicited no response. He was staring past me at the little home, now beyond any possible doubt destined to be a total loss. Edwin might return with all the fire brigades in Hampshire, but nothing was going to prevent Wee Nook winding up as a heap of ashes. What? He said, speaking thickly as if the soul were bruised, as I imagined to have been the case. What? 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 I saw that, unless checked, this was going to take some time. There's been a fire, I said. What do you mean? Well, I didn't see how I could have put it any clearer. A fire, I repeated, waving a hand in the direction of the burning edifice, as much as to tell him to take a glance for himself. How are you, Uncle Percy? You're looking fine. He wasn't, as a matter of fact, nor did this attempt to ease the strain by giving him the old oil have the desired effect. He directed at me a kind of frenzied glare, containing practically nil in the way of an uncle's love, and spoke in a sort of hollow, despairing voice. I might have known. My best friends would have warned me what would come of letting a lunatic like you loose in the place. I ought to have guessed that the first thing you would do before so much as unpacking would be to set the whole damn premises ablaze. Not me, I said, wishing to give credit where credit was due. Edwin! Edwin, my son! Yes, I know! I said sympathetically. Too bad! Yes, he's your son, all right. He's been tidying up. You can't start a fire by tidying up! You can if you use gunpowder. Gunpowder! He appears to have touched off a keg or two in the kitchen chimney to correct a disposition on its part to harbour soot. Well, I had naturally supposed, as anyone would have supposed, that this frank explanation would have set me right, causing him to dismiss me without a stain on my character, and that the rather personal note which had crept into his remarks would instantly have been switched off. What I anticipated was he would issue an apology for that crack of his about lunatics, which I would gracefully accept, and that we would get together like two old bodies and shake our heads over the impulsiveness of the younger generation. Not a bit of it, however. He continued to bend upon me the accusing gaze which I had disliked so much from the start. Why the devil did you give the boy gunpowder? I saw he still had the wrong angle. I didn't give the boy gunpowder. Only a congenital idiot would give a boy gunpowder. There's not a man in England except you who would know what would happen if you give a boy gunpowder. Do you realize what you've done? The sole reason for you coming here was that I should have a place where I could meet an old friend and discuss certain matters of interest. And now look at it. I ask you, look at it. Not too good, I was forced to concede as the roof fell in sending up a shower of sparks and causing a genial glow to pay about our cheeks. I suppose it never occurred to you to throw water on the flames. It did to Edwin, and he used paraffin. He started, staring at me incredulously. You tried to put out a fire with paraffin. You ought to be certified. And as soon as I can collect a couple of doctors, I'll have it seen too. What was making this conversation so difficult was, as you have probably spotted, the apparent impossibility of getting the old ass 
to sort out the principles in the affair and assign to each his respected role. He was one of those men you meet sometimes who only listens to about two words of any observation addressed to them. I suppose he had got that way through presiding at board meetings and constantly chipping in and squilching shareholders in the middle of sentences. Once more I tried to drive home to him that it was Edwin who had done all the what you might call heavy work, Bertram having been throughout merely an innocent bystander. But it didn't penetrate. He was left with the settled conviction that I and the child had got together, forming a quorum, and after touching off the place with gunpowder, had nursed the conflagration along with careful injections of paraffin. Each encouraging each, as you might say, on the principle that it was teamwork that tells. When he finally pushed off, instructing me to send Jeeves along to him the moment he arrived, he was reiterating the opinion that I ought not be at large, and wishing, though here I definitely could not see eye to eye with him, that I was ten years younger, so that he could have got after me with his hunting crop. He then withdrew, leaving me to my meditations. These, as you may suppose, were not of the juiciest. However, they didn't last long, for I don't suppose I had been meditating more than a couple of minutes when a wheezing, rattling sound made itself heard off stage, and there entered, left upper centre, a vehicle which could only have been a station taxi. There was luggage on it, and looking more closely, I saw Jeeves protruding from the side window. The weird old object, the cab I mean, not Jeeves, came to a halt at the gate. Jeeves paid it off, the luggage was dumped by the roadside, and he was at liberty to get into conference with the young master, not an instant too soon for the latter. I had need of his sympathy, encouragement, and advice. I also wanted to tick him off a bit for letting me into all this. Chapter 11 Jeeves, I said, getting right down to it in the old Worcester way, here's a nice state of things. Sir... Hell's foundations have been quivering. Indeed, sir. The curse has come upon me, as I warned you it would if I ever visited Steeple Bumpley. You have long been familiar with my views on this leper colony. Have I not repeatedly said that what, though the spicy breezes blow soft over Steeple Bumpley, the undersigned deemed it wisest to give it the complete miss in bulk? Yes, sir. Very well, Jeeves. Perhaps you will listen to me another time. However... Let us flit lightly over the recriminations and confine ourselves to the facts. You notice our curd little home has been gutted? Yes, sir. I was just observing it. Edwin did that. There's a lad, Jeeves. There's a boy who makes you feel that what this country wants is somebody like King Herod. Starting in with gunpowder and carrying on with paraffin. Just cast your eyes over those smouldering ruins. You would scarcely have thought it possible, would you, that one frail child in a sport shirt and khaki shorts could have accomplished such devastation? Yet he did it, Jeeves, and did it on his head. You understand what this means? Yes, sir. He has properly put the kibosh on the trysting place of Uncle Percy and his nautical pal. You'll have to think again. Yes, sir. His lordship is fully alive to the fact that in the existing circumstances... A meeting at Weenook will not be feasible. You've seen him, then? He was emerging from the lane as I entered it, sir. Did he tell you he wants you to go and hobnob with him at your earliest convenience? Yes, sir, indeed. He insists on my taking up residence at the hall. 
so as to be handy in case you have a sudden inspiration. No doubt that was in his lordship's mind, sir. Was I invited? No, sir. Well, I hadn't expected to be. Nevertheless, I was conscious of a pang. We part then for the nonce, do we? I fear so, sir. You taking the high road and self taking the low road, as it were? Yes, sir. I shall miss you, Jeeves. Thank you, sir. Who's the chap who was always beefing about losing gazelles? The poet Moore, sir. He complained that he had never nursed a dear gazelle to glad him with its soft black eye. But when it came to know him well and love him, it was sure to die. It's the same with me. I am a gazelle short. You don't mind me alluding to you as a gazelle, Jeeves? Not at all, sir. Well, that's that, then. I suppose I'd better go and stay with Boko. I was about to suggest that, sir. I am sure Mr. Fittleworth will be most happy to accommodate you. I think so. I hope so. Only recently he was speaking about killing fatted calves. But to return to Uncle Percy and the old salt from America, have you any idea on the subject of bringing them together? Not at the moment, sir. Well, bend the bean to it, because it's important. Remember me telling you that Boko and young Nobby were betrothed? Yes, sir. She can't marry without Uncle Percy's consent. Indeed, sir. Not till she's twenty-one. Legal stuff. And here's the nub, Jeeves. I haven't time to give you the full details now, but Boko, the silly ass, has been making a silly ass of himself, with the result that he has... What's the word that means making somebody froth at the mouth and chew pieces out of the carpet? Alienate, sir, is, I think, the verb for which you are groping. That's it! Alienate! Well, as I say, I've no time to give you the inside story now, but Boko has played the goat and alienated Uncle Percy, and not a smell of a guardian's blessing is the latter prepared to give him. So you see what I mean about this meeting. It's vital that it takes place at the earliest possible date. In order that his lordship may be brought to a more amiable frame of mind, sir. Exactly! If that merger comes off, the milk of human kindness will slosh about him like the rising tide, swamping all animosity. Or don't you think so? Undoubtedly, in my opinion, sir. That's what I felt, and that's why you found me moody just now, Jeeves. I had just concluded an unpleasant interview with Uncle Percy, in the course of which he came out openly as not one of my admirers, thinking incorrectly that I had played an impressive part in the recent spot of arson. He wronged you, sir. Completely. I had nothing to do with it. I was a mere cipher in the affair. Edwin attended to the whole thing. But that was what he thought, and he blinded and stiffed with a will. Unfortunate, sir. Most. Of course, for the actual vote of censure that was passed, I care little. A few poos and a tush about cover that. Bertram Worcester is not a man who minds a few harsh words. He laughs lightly and snaps the fingers. It's wholly immaterial to me what the old bounder thinks of me. And in any case, he didn't say a tithe of the things Aunt Agatha would have got off in similar circumstances. But the point is that I promised Nobby that I would plead for her loved one. And what was saddening me when you came along was the thought that my potentialities in that direction had become greatly diminished. As far as Uncle Percy is concerned, I am not the force I was. So push that meeting along. I will certainly use every endeavour, sir. I fully appreciate the situation. Right. 
Now, what else have I got to tell you? Oh yes, Stilton! Mr. Cheesewright? Police Constable Cheesewright, Jeeves. Stilton turns out to be a village blue bottle. He seemed surprised, and I didn't wonder. To him, of course, on the occasion when they had met at the flat, Stilton had been a mere ordinary tweed-suited popper-in. I mean, no uniform, no helmet, and not a suggestion of any regulation boots. A policeman, sir. Yes, and a nasty, vindictive policeman, too. With him, also, I've been having an unpleasant interview. He resents my presence here. I suppose a great many young gentlemen enter the force nowadays, sir. I wish one fewer had. It's a tricky business falling foul of the constabulary, Jeeves. Yes, sir. I shall have to employ ceaseless vigilance so as to give him no loophole for exercising his official powers. No drunken revels at the village pub. No, sir. One false step and he'll swoop on me like the... Who was it who came down like a wolf on the fold? The Assyrian, sir. That's right. Well, that is what I have been through since I last saw you. First Stilton, then Edwin, then the fire, finally Uncle Percy, all in about half an hour. It just shows what Steeple Bumpley can do when it starts setting about. And, oh my gosh, I was forgetting. You know the brooch? Sir. Aunt Agatha's brooch. Oh, yes, sir. I lost it. Oh, it's all right. I found it again. But what I mean is, picture my embarrassment. My heart stood still. I can readily imagine it, sir. But you have it safely now. Oh, rather, I said, dipping a hand into the pocket. Oh, rather, I went on, bringing it out again with ashen face and bulging eyes. Oh, rather not, Jeeves. You will scarcely credit this, but the bolly thing is gone again. It occasionally happens, and I had to tell him off for doing so, that this man receives announcements that the young master's world is rocking about him with a mere, most disturbing, sir. But now is plain that he recognized that the thing was too big for that. I don't think he paled, and he certainly didn't say, golly, or anything of that nature. But he came as near as it ever does to what they call in the movies, the quick take. There was concern in his eyes, and if it hadn't been that his views are rigid in the matter of the correct etiquette between employee and employer, I have an idea that he would have patted me on the shoulder. This is a serious disaster, sir. You're informing me, Jeeves. Her ladyship will be sorely vexed. I can picture her screaming with annoyance. Can you think where you may have dropped it, sir? That's just what I'm trying to do. Wait, Jeeves. I said, closing my eyes. Let me brood. I brooded. Oh, my gosh. Sir. I've got it. The brooch, sir? No, Jeeves, not the brooch. I mean, I've reconstructed the scene. I've now spotted where I must have parted company with it. Here's the sequence. The place caught fire, and I suddenly remembered I had left the small suitcase in the hall. I need scarcely remind you of its contents. My Sinbad the sailor costume. Ah, yes, sir. Don't say, ah, yes, Jeeves. Just keep on listening. I suddenly remembered, I repeat, that I had left the small suitcase in the hall. Well, you know me. To think is to act. I was inside, gathering it up, without a moment's delay. This involved stooping. The stooping must have caused the thing to fall out of my pocket. Then it would still be in the hall, sir. Yes, and take a look at the hall. We both looked. I shook my head. He shook his. We nook was burning lower now, 
but its interior was still something only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have entered with any genuine enjoyment. No hope of getting it out, if it's there. No, sir. What's to be done? May I brood, sir? Certainly, Jeeves. Thank you, sir. He passed into silence, and I filled the time by thinking of what Aunt Agatha was going to say. I did not look forward to getting in touch with her. In fact, it seemed as if another of my quick trips to America would be rendered necessary. About the only advantage of having an aunt like her is that it makes one travel, thus broadening the mind and enabling one to see new faces. And I was just saying to myself, young man, go west, when happening to glance at the thinker. I observed that his face was wearing the brainy expression which always signifies that there is a hot one coming along. Yes, Jeeves? I think I may have hit on a simple solution to your difficulties, sir. Let me have it, Jeeves, and speedily. What I would suggest, sir, is that I take the car, drive to London, call at the Emporium where her ladyship made her purchase, and procure another brooch in place of the one that is missing. I weighed this, and it sounded promising. Hope began to burgeon. You mean put on an understudy? Yes, sir. Delivering it to the addressee is the original. Precisely, sir. I went on weighing, and the more I did so, the fruitier the idea seemed. Yes, I see what you mean. The mechanism is much the same as that which you employed in the case of Aunt Agatha's dog Mackintosh. Not dissimilar, sir. There we were, in the position of being minus an Aberdeen Terrier, when we should have been plus an Aberdeen Terrier. You reasoned correctly that all of this peculiar canine family look very much alike, and rang in a ringer with complete success. Yes, sir. Would the same system work with brooches? I think so, sir. And is one brooch pretty much like another? Not invariably, sir, but a few words of inquiry will enable me to obtain a description of the lost trinket, and to ascertain the price which her ladyship paid for it. I shall thus be enabled to return with something virtually indistinguishable from the original. I was convinced. It was as if a heavy weight had been removed from my soul, I have mentioned that a short while back he seemed to be thinking of patting me on the shoulder. It was now all I could do to restrain myself from patting on his. A winner, Jeeves! Thank you, sir. Rem! Oh, what is it again? Acutetogisti, sir. I might have known that you would find the way. I'm gratified to feel that I enjoy your confidence, sir. I have an account in Aspinall's, so you could tell them to chalk it up on the slate. Very good, sir. Buzz off! Instanter! There is ample time, sir. I shall be able to reach London long before the establishment closes for the day. Before proceeding further, I think it would be best for me to stop at Mr. Fiddleworth's residence, apprise him of what has occurred, deposit the luggage, and warn him of your coming. Is warn the word? Inform, I should have said, sir. Well, don't cut it too fine. The sands are running out. Remember... That brooch must be in the recipient's hands tonight. What one aims at is to have it lying alongside a plate at the dinner table. I shall undoubtedly be able to reach Steeple Bumpley on my return journey at about the dinner hour, sir. Right ho, Jeeves. I know I can rely on you to run to time. First, stop at Boko's. Then, I, meanwhile, will be nosing round here. There's just a chance I may have dropped the thing somewhere in the open. I can't remember exactly how the sight of the fire affected me, but I have no doubt that I sprang up and down a bit, quite nimbly enough to jerk packages out of pockets. 
Of course, I didn't think so, really. My original theory that I'd become unbroached while picking up the suitcase persisted. But on these occasions, the instinct is to turn every stone and leave no avenue unexplored. I nosed round accordingly, scanning the turf and even going so far as to feel about in the rockery. As I have foreseen, no dice. It wasn't long before I gave up and started to stroll along to Boko's. And I had just reached his gate when there was the ting of a bicycle bell. I noted a curious phenomenon that the denizens of Steeple Bumpley seemed to do practically nothing but ride on bicycles, tinging bells. And I saw Nobby approaching. I hastened to meet her, for she was just the girl I wanted to get in touch with. I was anxious to thresh out with her the whole topic of Stilton and his love life.